0: Luke's gospel highlights the activity of a mighty and faithful God through Jesus, our Messiah, the promised one who shows us the way to the Father. Messiah, the Lord, fulfills what is typified in the three anointed offices of the Old Testament, prophet, priest, and king. Good morning. Welcome to my brothers and sisters. Welcome to my visiting brothers and sisters. Welcome to everyone visiting. And I was told that Chris was here from... There he is from the East Coast. Welcome, Chris. He's our, he's our member who comes and goes from the East Coast. So last year... We were looking in Luke, Luke 3, and we worked our way down from Luke 3, 1 to 22. We're not done with Luke. We will not be done with Luke for a while, as we will see. But what I want to do, as I was going through this in much prayer, is the Word of God is a valuable gem, very valuable And we can turn this gem, and we can look inside this gem, and we can meditate on this gem. And we can learn, and God transforms us as we meditate on this gem. And so we're going to take, go back into Luke 3, 21 through 38, and we're going to start there. But I must say, as those who know me, and I convey this, this is a very heavy, overwhelming privilege. And it's a godly fear to be up here and preach when you realize that this is the Word of God given to us for life and faith. And so, when we're asking for prayer, Guga and I both, we are very, very serious because when we are preparing and working through here, the humbleness and the fear. And the reverence and the battles are real. Because the enemy does not want this word to go forward. As we will see later on. So it's very important. Prayer does matter. So please do not stop. So as I said, we're going to be exploring a little bit of the baptism. We'll go into a little of the genealogy. But we want to look at the relation. To the history of redemption and the person and work of Christ here, Jesus is declared to be the Son of God by a heavenly voice. And the Holy Spirit rests on him in power, visibly, comes down, and empowers him to be the perfect, obedient Son of God and fulfilling His ministry and confirming Jesus' status as the Messiah. This is where we're going. And as a Messiah, the Lord fulfills what is typified in the three anointed offices of the old testament prophet priest and king so please open your bibles to luke 3 we'll start at verse 21 and please stand as in reverence and respect for this the word of god and i will not be reading the whole genealogy you will not have a Texan butcher Hebrew like this, okay? So I will pick certain out, to, names out, and, and we will go from there. Verse 21. Now it happened that when all the people were being baptized, Jesus was also baptized. And while he was praying, heaven was opened. And the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came out of heaven You are my beloved son, and you, I am well pleased. When Jesus began his ministry, Jesus himself was about 30 years of age, being, as was supposed, the son of Joseph, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Sheetiel, the son of David, the son of Abraham, the son of Noah, the son of Abraham, the son of God. heavenly father who inhabits all eternity God the spirit please fill me and empower me to deliver your word faithfully today Holy Spirit give me the strength I need to preach despite my many many limitations and my many weaknesses your word does the work my lord and my king may your word be profitable in all of our lives I ask for the believers, the dear saints, that we will understand and apply your truth. And the word word will truly transform us more and more into the image of Christ. I also pray for those who do not know you, that you will open the closed hearts to believe the truth, that salvation is only through the Lord Jesus Christ, and that all of us, all of us need to be saved. Produce in us a conviction of sin and a deep repentance and a living and fruitful faith in our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Yahweh, my rock and my Redeemer. Lord, speak through your word, for your slaves are listening. I ask this for your glory and your glory alone. In the name above all names, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. So since we've jumped, we were in Titus and then had a topic. So we'll do, just want to go really quick over a little bit about what the book of Luke is about. We will not do anything like last time. It'll be very short as we go into this. So Luke is showing us how God is fulfilling his promises to dwell with his people in Christ. As we will hear today, this is what scripture is about. God dwelling with his chosen people. So Luke's gospel highlights the activity of a mighty and faithful God through Jesus our Messiah. The promised one who shows us the way to the Father. Luke's account speaks eloquently of God's salvation sent first to the Jews to the Gospel of Luke and then to the Gentiles throughout the Mediterranean world in the book of Acts emphasizing God offers salvation to all people including those that are far off regardless of ethnicity, nationality, social class, gender or age. Luke primarily speaks of the fulfillment of four different things. As you read Luke, this is what he's fulfilling. Predicted in the Old Testament. I will stop here briefly. To understand the new, you must understand the old. Okay? Because if you look, the new comes right out of the old. So you must have that. Do not neglect the Old Testament. So number one. The Christiology, the message of repentance, turn in for for forgiveness of sins. Number two, Israelites' rejection of the Messiah. Three, Gentile inclusion. Four, injustice at the end. If you have to summarize the book of Luke, this is what it is. So if you look at that genealogy... In contrast to Matthew, Luke's genealogy mentions no women. There are no explicative words in addition to the names. Luke is tracing the genealogy back to Adam, in fact, to God. Whereas Matthew begins with Adam. Uh, sorry, Abraham. What's unusual is that all known genealogies trace back to human figures, but not Luke. If you look, Luke alone traces back to God himself. So Luke's uh, exception to the well-established protocol of genealogies reinforced the dual focus on on the baptism. Jesus, the Son of God, stands in solidarity with humanity. Jesus' baptism with all the people. He identifies with all of us with his public baptism. That is what he's doing connects him spatially with humanity. The 77 human names in in the genealogy connect him temporally with humanity. He's connecting with us. God has anointed him. God is proclaiming him the Son of God. The genealogy shows he's the Son of Man. This is what's going on. By inserting the genealogy between the baptism and temptation, Luke accentuates Jesus' divine sonship. By placing Jesus in human lineage that begins with the Son of God, Luke is signaling dual identity, human yet divine, both Son of Man and Son of God. This is where Luke is going and one to emphasize. If we look at Luke 3.22, Jesus is declared to be the Son of God in a unique and theological significant sense. But then in Luke 3.38, the genealogy concludes that he's the son of Adam and the son of God. This is a different kind of divine sonship. One that Jesus shares with created humanity. God with us. God dwelling among his people. By placing them so close together, Luke perhaps intends to alert us to the paradox. Divine human Jesus who fully shares the nature of God, at the same time is fully one of us. By tracing Jesus' ancestry back to Adam, Luke may also be alluding to the Pauline idea of Christ as the second Adam, or it would be the last Adam. The The representative man by whose obedience, whose obedience humanity is rescued from the consequences of the first Adam's disobedience. So Jesus is declared the Son of God by a heavenly voice, and the Holy Spirit rests on him, empowering him to be perfectly obedient to God in fulfilling the ministry and confirming Jesus' status as the Messiah. The genealogy concludes. That he is the son of Adam, the son of God. Very, very important. We'll just keep talking about this. This is a different kind of divine sonship. One that Jesus Jesus shares with all created humanity. Jesus is the long expected son of God, the better and greater Adam, the greater Israel, the greater David, who fulfills the threefold Old Testament Israel ministries of prophet, priest, and king. As Messiah, the Lord fulfills what was typified in those three offices. And that is where we're going today. We're going to start looking at the threefold office of Christ. And it will take us into next Lord's Day for sure. And so, I want us to understand the significance of this. This threefold ministry that Christ fulfills that the others could not, the types. So, although Christ's office as mediator is one, theologians speak of Christ's threefold covenantal office, also known as the monus triplex. Okay? Monus being office, triplex being threefold. He fulfills, the one fulfills the three. Christ's work has great unity. Be in the work of one person, the only mediator. As Babnik has said, no single activity of Christ can be exclusively restricted to one office. He does not just perform prophetic, priestly, and kingly activities, but is himself, is the whole person, prophet, priest, and king. And everything he says and does manifests that threefold dignity. Letham also wanted to say that Christ is the prophet, priest, and king simultaneously and continuously. We have three offices for one for us to understand, but it's simultaneously. The Lord Jesus Christ was sent by the Father to serve as the prophet, priest, and king of his chosen people. As we go into this, let's keep in mind these very important facts. That Jesus Christ, Jesus the Messiah, is not our little buddy. Okay? We see this in this world. It gets more and more. The Lord Jesus is not our genie. We don't rub a lamp and we get what we want. He's not around 24-7 to grant us things to keep our life comfortable, on call, always on call we're in some kind of trouble what we need to understand is that Jesus Christ, the Lord the Lord Jesus Christ is both fully God and fully man he is simultaneously perfectly divine and perfectly human having two complete and distinct natures at once so if you understand this, you can explain to us the Trinity. Because it's the same mystery. It's incomprehensible in our small, little, finite minds. And he is the king, the priest, the prophet that we all desperately need. Because of Christ's threefold office, it perfectly matches the need created by sin. Sin. As Beacon Smalley wrote, First, sin is refusal to hear the divine word and to respond with faith and faithfulness with the consequence of foolishness and spiritual hardness towards God. This Christ that we need desperately heals by his prophetic work. Second, sin is rebellion against divine authority. Make no bones about it and transgression of his law. With a consequence of guilt and liability to punishment upon a sinner, this Christ we desperately need, spatiates by his priestly work. Third, sin is missing the divine mark and failing to fulfill the purpose of one's being as God's image bearer. With the consequence of moral pollution that excludes the sinner from serving in God's holy presence. This Christ we desperately need overcomes by his kingly work. God's original covenant was with Adam. So to understand these offices, we must go back to creation. Because Adam was created as God's son, the king, the priest, and the prophet. So I kind of fooled you. We're starting in Luke, but we will stay now in Genesis the rest of the time because we must understand how God set it up in the beginning. Okay? So God's original covenant with Adam constituted him to function as a ruling king, a worshiping priest, a revelatory prophet in the Garden of Eden, Genesis 2. We can start by turning over there. 15 through 17, a threefold office rooted in his capacities as God's image bearer. Chances 1, 26, 28. Adam's sin, Adam's sin broke the covenant of paradise, corrupted the image of God, and caused man to fall from his high office in which he was appointed. Christ is the last Adam. We can look at 1 Corinthians 15. And the image of God, Colossians 1.15. The threefold offices reach consummation in Him, in the Lord Jesus Christ. So, how was Adam a prophet, a priest, and a king? So let's start from the beginning to the beginning. Genesis 1. Through two. So God creates a vast cosmic temple where he dwells and sovereignly rules. In the beginning, God created the heavens, there's the cosmic, and the earth, now the physical. Eden should be understood as a mountain that houses God's glory. Adam and Eve enjoyed God's presence in Eden. God's glory is at the center of the created order. His glory sustains and nourishes all living things. This insight about Eden being the holy of holies on the earth demonstrates two important points. God ultimately wants to dwell with the created order. In all his fullness. And Adam and Eve were to play a critical role in accomplishing this goal. We must understand that a God we cannot fully understand has created all this so he can dwell with his chosen people. So that leaves our question, why did God graciously construct a cosmic temple? Mountain of Eden. Why does the creation of the cosmos parallel the construction of the tabernacle and the temple? Simply put, God built a cosmic house to occupy, much like an individual constructing a large estate on a plot of land. The owner desires to move in and manage it. God desires to rule the created order and fulfill it with his glorious presence. And that's what we're seeing in Genesis one through two, his glorious presence. As it comes, touches on Eden, the Mount of Eden. Eden is holy, not because it's a mountain. Eden is holy because God's presence is there. No different than the burning bush. That bush is just a bush when he was in it in Exodus. God made the bush holy. God makes the soil holy. God makes Eden holy. Quite simply, the universe is designed to house the veritable glory of God, if that were possible. Adam was created to be a prophet. He was created to be a priest and a king in marvelous dignity. But Adam failed. He failed, he failed this column miserably and fell far short of the glory of God. So, how was Adam a prophet? This is very important as we go forward through scriptures of these offices. So a prophet is someone who speaks God's word. A prophet is an individual who hears God's voice, speaks on behalf of God to his people. The prophet is, simply put, the embodiment of God's truth. The prophetic word is the very word of God on earth the very word of God on earth. Revelations 19.10 For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. The central theme of both Old Testament prophecy and New Testament preaching is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Always remember this. Boil it down to its essence. Now we often think, people often think that prophets and, of men and women who only foretell the future. But much more of biblical prophecy is not so much foretelling as forthtelling. That is applying God's truth to every, every situation. It's about the present as much as it's about the future. So God issues his law to Adam. You are free to eat this is Genesis 2, 16 through 17. You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat of it, words are important, when you eat of it, you will certainly die. Together with a divine commission to be fruitful and increase in number and subdue the earth, in Genesis 1, 28, Adam must take this prohibition to heart. He must meditate on it. He must relate it to his wife. That's his job. As Adam's family grows, his prophetic role will inevitably increase since more teaching will be required, more people. The first man is responsible to learn how the Genesis 128 Commission concretely relates to all of life. Adam must learn how to increase the territory of Eden. He's to go out and hold the earth, right? He then is required to teach his insights to his wife and to his children, and then the children must repeat the process. The expectation is that God's people will be godly, they will continually teach his precepts to one another. All of humanity is expected to embody the truth. Adam and Eve's prophetic role in Genesis 1 through 2 therefore manifests itself in two ways, exemplifying God's law and communicate it to others. How was Adam a priest? So again we do think a priest is someone who makes sacrifices for sin and yes this indeed is true. But a priest was also a person who representatively led people in worship. As priest Adam was to minister in God's garden sanctuary in Eden and expand God's glory. To the ends of the earth. Eden. Eden. Is the holy of holies. And the garden of Eden. Would be the holy place. If you look at the temple structure. Genesis 2.15. Then Yahweh took the man. And set him in the garden. And he was to cultivate. Or work. Keep it. Which also can be translated. Take care of. Watch over. Many commentators will point out that these two verbs, work and watch over, are found elsewhere in the Old Testament, referring to the priest's ministerial duties in the temple. It's almost of if Adam's given a warning, watch over. As you may or may not know, the later tabernacle and temple were built in a way that reflected The beauty of the Garden of Eden. And the Levitical family had the responsibility to look after them. And the very same expression, incidentally, that describes Adam's priestly ministry in the Garden of Eden in Genesis 2.15. Same expressions. So Adam is in charge with transplanting Eden and extending it beyond the mountain. He's quite simply commissioned to expand God's presence. As Eden expands, so does God's glory. We don't know how this would work. It's not written in the text. But we can at least be confident that Eden was to encompass eventually the entire earth. The the ultimate intention of humanity is therefore the the whole earth to be filled with God's images that radiates His glory. That's the original intent. But this has not changed, has it not? Matthew 28, 20. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Image bearers, glorifying God. So, the last one, how was Adam a king Adam was called to be king of the creation he was explicitly given dominion he was in his own sphere a miniature reflection of what God is to the whole creation created cosmos Adam and Eve were created as vice regents over the created order Simply stated, the vice-regents rule on behalf of others. They do not rule independent of the supreme ruler. In Genesis 1 and 2, Adam and Eve are to remain utterly dependent on God and extend, extend his rule throughout the earth. That's what they're to do. Adam and Eve, and presumably their family line through the generations, would extend that garden until it filled the whole earth with beauty and order. That's not what we see now. No beauty, no order. Adam's first accomplishments as king now, Lord God formed the animals out of the ground, and he brought the animals for him to be named. So when he names those, that's showing his sovereignty. So as God sovereignly named the various facets of the cosmos, so too Adam executes his rule by naming the animals. In doing so, the first man is discerning patterns within the created world and assigning function. Adam is beginning to achieve what he was designed to do. So Adam and Eve created for the purpose of extending God's rule over the created order so that his his God's divine presence would radiate out out from them God rules over the cosmos in invisible heavens with angels and the first couple is charged with appropriating that rule on earth It may not be such a far-fetched to suggest that Eden was the throne room of their kingdom. As I said, Eden was holy because God's presence made it holy. Wherever God is, that around him is holy. Authority on earth was given to Adam, and he was to express it lovingly, Creatively, as creation's prophet and their priest and his king, and he was to do it again over the whole earth. So far, so good. But, so that this takes out everything I just said, but, but, we get to Genesis 3. The fall, the rebellion, We learn here that the serpent, which we know is Satan, which is a spirit creature, he is still a creature. He is not something beyond. He is created. He is a creature. We are creatures. Angels are creatures. Demons are creatures. Part of the created world. This is the same world over which Adam and Eve were to exercise dominion. So by associating the serpent, Satan... With creation, the implication is that Adam and Eve are tasked to ruling over that serpent, that usurper. The temptation of Satan threatens all three offices of Adam, striking at the heart of being created in God's image. As God's images, the first couple represented him on earth and serves and serves him on his behalf. But the serpent's allures. Them to cast off God's image. This is what's going on. And become independent of God. And function at his level. This is not merely taking fruit and eating that was forbidden. This was, we will see is cosmic treason. The temptation is that his heart. Is to become like God. This is what's going on. To rule and to think like God. And Satan tempts Eve while she and Adam are in Eden, the Garden of Eden, a holy place. Below the mountain where God resides. The first sanctuary. So what's interesting, where Satan attacks first. Satan tempts Eve and strategically bypasses Adam. This is not an accident. Adam was created first, Genesis 2. And Adam is responsible, is responsible for leading and teaching and representing the family. Adam is thus the representative head of all humanity. By approaching Eve, the serpent is attempting to dismantle the family structures God originally set in place. Is this not what goes on every second of every day. Adam, who appears to be within earshot, Genesis 3, 6, should have immediately what? Intervened and cast him out. But that's not what happened. As prophet, Adam should have been meditating on God's law. The exchange between the serpent and Eve focuses on specifics of that law. Oh, we know they, he knows, they know Scripture very, very well. God was quite clear. You must not eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will certainly die. Certainly die. When Satan tempts Eve, notice how he's going to start twisting. little tweak here and there. To cause everything to go off course. So Satan's asks Eve, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden? How does temptation begin? <clears throat> Very small. Just not the tree of good and evil. Now, notice Eve's response to the initial temptation she fails to repeat God's law correctly. The woman said to the servant, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat. But from the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God said, You shall not eat from it, and you shall not touch it, lest you die. So God did not say anything about not touching it. That's been added. But God did clearly say, if you did eat of it, you will certainly die. Whereas Eve begins to soften the judgment or the curse. She claims you would just die. Whereas God says with full certainty, you will die. It's a twist already of scripture. So as priest, Adam should have read the sanctuary of Eden from this defilement. The serpent Satan embodies evil and rebellion and simply put is the greatest expression of uncleanness. The first priest should have recognized the unclean creature and eradicated it from God's temple. As king representing God on earth, Adam should have quickly subdued this serpent. He should have defended the garden. The presence of the foe in the garden presents the human, the king, with an opportunity to wage war. And we are truly in a war. The first first shot's fired. The fall reveals that Adam and Adam and Eve failed to live up to their identity as images of God. God designed them to rule to worship, to embody God's law, yet they fail to keep the covenant of works in all three respects. In Genesis 3.9, because, Jan- because Adam is the representative head of all of us, God approaches Adam and not Eve to give accountability for their actions. Adam and Eve's refusal to follow God's command stem from their fundamental belief that their way was better. Nothing, beloved, has changed. We want to do things our way, in our eyes, our way is always better. I can watch what someone does. Oh, I can do that better. You watch what somebody. Oh, I can do that better. It's no different. It's been going on since day one. So we have a full-blown rebellion. What are some of the effects of this, the fall? Immediately after their cosmic treason, and this is what this is, a most holy God has been disobeyed. This is cosmic treason. There will be Judgment. Now, disobeying God and eating the forbidden fruit, Adam and Eve realized they were naked. Now, what's interesting, as I was reading, the word here for naked is related to a Hebrew word for crafty. Which is used in Exodus 21 and Joshua 9 and Job 5. So, we saw in Genesis 3.1, the serpent was described as more crafty than any other creatures. Okay? So, as a result of the fall, the couple now is beginning to take on characteristics of who? Satan, not God. They made a choice. They are going their own way. So instead of representing God on earth, Adam and Eve are now beginning to represent Satan. And we all wonder why the world looks like it looks. This insight brings us to an important principle that we must never ever forget. Images will always be transformed into the object they worship. As Beale says in his book, "What We Become What We Worship, he so rightly states, what people revere, they resemble, either for ruin or restoration. Images are meant to reflect and refract god so if adam and eve obey god they become more like him their divine images image was become more and more aligned with god's character here we go but 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 because they believe and trusted in the serpent instead of god they began to be transformed into the serpent's image instead of manifesting the traits of god on earth they and their descendants would manifest the traits of the serpent. In the following verses, Adam and Eve shift the blame yep, and are unwilling to answer the Lord truthfully. They, like Satan the serpent, are attempting to deceive. They are acting like their new father, the father of lies. So God then outlines the curses that he will execute because of their disobedience. And when God curses Eve, the divine commission of 128 hangs in the background of these curses. The point is that Eve's fulfillment of the commission will be now incredibly difficult. Adam and Eve will indeed populate the earth, but it will come at a high cost. Adam will continue to operate as a priest, but he will do so under great peril. The curse climax is in Adam's death. The ultimate price of attempting to be like God is alien nation from him, physically and spiritually. But in the curse, we have a promise of redemption. Embedded within the serpent's curse is a profound promise of redemption Genesis 3:15 states God will put enmity between the serpent and his ungodly offspring and the godly descendants of Adam and Eve. And that enmity happened with the first two brothers. One killed the other. Here we have a war of seeds. The basic outline that will permeate the remainder of the Bible's story until we go to Revelation 21 22. The book ends. Genesis 1 and 2, Revelation 21 22. God dwells with his people. God dwells with his people. The drama of redemption in between. So I kind of like the way Paul puts things in Romans three, twenty-three. It's especially telling of our fallen state. He says there that all, not some, not most, all have sinned. All have committed cosmic treason. Adam and Eve have sinned. Their descendants have sinned. You and I have sinned. But then he goes on to say that not only have all sinned, but we have all fallen short of the glory of God. Beloved, there is just such wickedness and perversity in our sin. But in some ways, there is is even a greater greater tragedy. Because though created for enjoyment and glory with God and in God, we have forfeited it all by our sin. But thankfully, praise God, that is not where this story will end, is it? Because another prophet, priest, and king has come, a better one, a proper man whom God himself has sent. He has dealt with Adam's sin and ours. He has finished the work his father gave him to do. And he is able to restore us to the pattern God originally intended for us. He will cover the entire cosmos in his glory. Thanks be to God. So because of original sin in Adam, we are by nature children of wrath, and rightly so. As the Old Testament shows, we are sinners by conception from the top of our head, the sole of our feet. We are contaminated, infected with sin. Our hearts, the engine of all we are and we do, are by nature depraved. Those who were forgiven much, love much. Behold how much you have been forgiven, beloved. I will quote that. Gustavo Barros. Bajos. So it's against this black and hopeless background that grace of a sinless and totally moral and upright Savior shines forth. If there is any part of our composition that is not infected with sin, there is no need for a perfect Savior. Christianity is a sinner's religion. We must see our state and condition as the Bible, the Word of God, declares us to be we are so completely lost without a savior and this is the story of the drama of scripture again Genesis 1 through 2 God is dwelling with his people the whole the goal that is the goal Genesis 3 to Revelation 20 God's glorious drama a redemption of his people because all have gone away and then in Revelation, if you look at 21:22, is God doing? He's dwelling with his chosen people. So if someone asks you what the scripture is about, there you go. Very, very concise. And I like what Michael Morales writes as we finish up. The glorious drama of redemption is our triune Lord making a way for a people to dwell in his presence and behold his glorious face. Life with God in the house of God, this was the original goal of creation of the cosmos, and which then becomes the goal of redemption, the new creation. Entering in the house of God, to dwell with God, beholding, glorifying, and join Him eternally, is the story of the Bible. The plot that makes sense of the various acts and persons and places of its pages, the deepest context for its doctrines. For this ultimate end, the Son of God shed His blood and poured out His Spirit from on high, even to bring us into His Father's house, in Him as sons and daughters of God. If we could only grasp that truly who we are in Christ. Each and every day we are reminded of our fallen condition. And if you don't, you've just, yeah, you're in your fallen condition. There you go. Though believers enjoy a restored image of Christ, indwelling in sin remains. Hence the battle. All thoughts and actions are still tainted with sin. And the penalty for sin is for God to pour out his wrath on us and for us to be completely estranged from him. Not what he wanted. But in Christ, God's wrath has been appeased and we have drawn near to God's presence. Christians would do well to remember on a daily basis. We must preach the gospel to ourselves daily. The justification and right standing before God that we enjoy in Christ. Let us not forget that. We would also do well to contemplate our previous condition outside of Christ. Recognizing the gravity of our sin leads to a deeper appreciation of God's grace in Christ. The more that we worship and adore Christ, the more we will be transformed into His image. This is what sanctification entails. The process of becoming like Christ, praying often, reading God's word, enjoying the sweet fellowship, the sweet, sweet fellowship with believers are some of the concrete ways in which we can become more sanctified. One way in which we can determine whether we are ridden ourselves of idolatry is to just take an inventory of our thoughts and our ambitions. Do we spend most of our week satisfied in Christ? Or are we consumed with ourselves? Are your thoughts and affections inward? Or are they outward towards Christ? Let us pray. Father God, thank you. Thank you for coming to save a rebellious, rebellious lot as ourselves. Lord, you did not have to. But, Heavenly Father, you want to dwell with the people. And it cost you everything. To make a way, through the Son, by the Holy Spirit, a way back to God the Father. To one day dwell with him in all eternity, in all amazement that he will dwell among his people. Lord, there are not words to say thank you. There is not enough praise to fill what needs to be done to praise your holy name and for who you are. Lord, send your spirit to guide us, to lead us, to fill us with your wonder, to praise you more. Open up your word to us. Transform us. We thank you, Lord, for all you have done. All you are doing and all you will do. In Jesus' name, amen.